lot of people have the idea that the church is for good people. That being a part of the church means that uh, you are a good person and you are worthy of being in the church. Now, part of the reason why people have that mindset is because the church has sort of given them that mindset. But the reality is, is when we read the scriptures, we find a completely different idea of the church and the kingdom. What we don't find is God saying, I'm looking for all the good people. We find God saying, I'm looking for real people. And one of the places in the scripture where we see that, maybe in a bit of a subtle way, is the opening section of Matthew's gospel. If you have a Bible with you, or if you want to use one of the pew Bibles, turn to the opening of Matthew's gospel. Now, we didn't read this today because, quite frankly, I didn't want to put anybody through that. Because what we find in the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel is a genealogy of Jesus. It's just names. And you read that list and and you wonder, okay, what exactly does that tell us? See, we have a tendency to think that if you're going to write a book that that people want to read, then the introduction needs to grab people. Because a lot of us will pick up a book and say, I don't know what this is about. You read the first paragraph or two and you make a decision, am I going to continue or not? And so you think about some of the great works of literature and, and some of the, the, the sentences that have been written to begin. You know, probably one of the most famous, Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Or even A Christmas Carol. Marley was dead to begin with. George Orwell's 1984 begins, it was a cold, bright day in April and the clocks were striking 13. You think, hmm, what's that about? I think I want to read some more of that. There are more modern books as well. Uh, Ann Tyler wrote a book called Back When We Were Grown-Ups and it begins, once upon a time, There was a woman who discovered that she had turned into the wrong person. Dodie Smith wrote a book that's called I Capture the Castle that begins, I write this sitting in the kitchen sink. I'm kind of intrigued by that book. I think I might want to read the rest of that. C.S. Lewis begins The Voyage of the Dawn Treader with this great sentence, There was a boy called Clarence Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) And maybe one of the best titles or best first sentences is Barbara Robinson's book, The Best Christmas Pageant Ever, that begins, the Herdmans were were the most terrible kids in the history of the world. 
Well, we read something and we think it ought to grab us. I mean, that's what we were taught in seminary. You know, you begin, you want to grab people's attention. That's how you do that. And so we pick up the New Testament and we think, okay, Matthew's gospel is going to grab our attention. He ought to at least say something like, this book's going to change your life. And we say, wow, we want to read more. And what do we find? We find names. And quite frankly, names don't really mean that much to us. They're just names. And you wonder, what, what is he doing? Why would he do this? Well, we know Matthew writes his gospel to convince Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah. And one of the things that's important to, to that process is proving his genealogical heritage. That his lineage is what it's supposed to be. That it goes back to David and Judah. And so Matthew lays out this list of names to tell people he's the right one. He's got the right heritage. It's important. But I think it's more than just that. As important as that is, I think Matthew's doing something else here as well. Because I think this is not just a historic genealogy. I think it's a theological genealogy. It's interesting as you look at verse 17... Matthew says, let me just talk to you about the numbers that this represents. He he divides it into three groups of 14. Now, he has a different genealogy somewhat than Luke. Luke has at least 15 more names than Matthew does, which tells us that Matthew's genealogy is a little bit selective. He doesn't tell us every name that he could have given us. Instead, he's more concerned about some symmetry. And Matthew loves to group things. You see it, the Sermon on the Mount, and when he writes about the the last days, he loves to group stories and and ideas into into things that are, so that it brings home his point. And he does that here as well. And he connects in with numerology that was very important to people back in first century Palestine. And what we see here is three is representative of God, so that, that people would grasp that right away. And he has these sets of 14, which, and number seven, it represents perfection. And so 14 is double perfection. And so for people who are interested in numerology, he's saying you have God tied into this. You also have perfection, double perfection with these lists of 14 names. But you also, if you divide that up, you also have six sevens. And if seven is the perfect number, then Jesus represents the seventh seven. Which is completion, fulfillment, perfection. And Matthew's tapping into people for whom that is really important to them to see that. But even beyond that, I am intrigued by the fact that if this is a selective genealogy, that Matthew chooses the names that he chooses. I mean, if we write a genealogy about our own family... We're going to pick the people that we think are going to make us look the best, right? To impress people. And we all have people in our family that we wish weren't in our family in terms of their stories, right? And if you say, well, I don't think my family has any of those people. You just haven't looked far enough. You haven't done enough genealogical background. Because we all have people in our history. And Matthew isn't afraid of those people. You look at this list of names. He's got a list of kings here. You, what you get is the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's got a list of kings here. And, and their stories. And the Jews would know their stories. 
You have people like Rehoboam, who is, who is so greedy and so power-hungry that he is willing to, to divide the kingdom. The kingdom is rent from him, and it splits forever into two kingdoms. And you have someone like Jehoram, who leads the people into idolatry, leads them away from God. And in fact, when he dies, the writer of Chronicles says that he passes away to no one's regret. Wow. That's a bad guy. We all hope no one says that about us. And you have someone like Ahaz who, who sets up idols all around Israel, who sacrifices his sons to the fire, who shuts down the temple and locks the doors so the people won't worship God anymore. And, and when, he is, when punishment comes upon him, instead of that turning him toward God, it turns him away from God even more. And then you come to Manasseh. Manasseh is described as someone who does more evil in the eyes of God than the nations that God eliminated so that Israel could take over the land. Manasseh shed so much innocent blood in Jerusalem that it's from end to end. And when... After the exile, when the Israelites are taken into captivity because of their sin, the writer of Kings summarizes that and says, surely this is because of the sin of Manasseh. And yet, here he is in this list of Jesus' people. It's intriguing also that women are listed in this genealogy. In a world in which women have very little, if any, rights, they are considered basically insignificant. They're named. I think it says something as an aside to the fact that there are no second-class people in the kingdom of God. And then then you think of the women who are mentioned. They're not exactly the most stellar people. The circumstances are not exactly the most stellar of circumstances. You have Rahab, you have Tamar who seduces her father-in-law and the children of that union are part of Jesus' lineage. And the, Matthew points that out. And Rahab, who, whose um, occupation is not exactly moral, she's pointed out. And you have Bathsheba and people know that story. He brings that out. He's not afraid of those people. And then you have a lot of good people in here too. You have people like Abraham, who's called a friend of God. Isaac, who is a a man of peace. Boaz, a man of integrity. David, a man after God's own heart. Asa, who says, does good in the eyes of the Lord. Jehoshaphat, of whom it said God is with him. Josiah, who opens up the temple, finds the book of the law, and reestablishes the the whole worship of Israel. And Zerubbabel, who with Ezra and Nehemiah is at the forefront of of helping to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and reestablish the people after the exile. There are some good people here. But even their lives aren't, aren't just sort of whitewashed. I mean, you look at David. 
I mean, David, you think, would be the one guy who gets a pass, a a man after God's own heart. And yet, when he mentions David, he mentions also Bathsheba. Now, actually, he doesn't even mention Bathsheba. He says, David, whose son was born of the woman who was Uriah's wife. Which brings the whole thing back up. David's coveting and adultery and murder and lying to cover it up. And this is God's, one of God's favorite people. And when I read all of this, I am struck by the fact that God's kingdom is not about finding good people. It's about finding real people. The kingdom of God is not about people who are good enough. It's about people who are real and who are open to God. Despite all the flaws and the messiness of our lives. God is more interested in real people who have messy stuff in their lives than he is about people who appear to be good. Because God's more interested in relationship than about trying to find people who are perfect. You know, God could have created us as robots or mannequins. You ever notice how real life mannequins are becoming? I can't tell you how many times I've been in the store and I have almost mistaken a mannequin for a real person. Not too long ago, I was in a store, I couldn't find something, and I came this close to asking a mannequin for help. (laughs) I'm serious. I'm like, nobody saw that, did they? I mean, they look so real, but they're not. You can talk to them all you want. They do not talk back. You don't build a relationship with a mannequin. I mean, they they may not cause any problems. Their lives don't, you know, they they their lives are are clean, and there's no nothing to worry about with them doing anything wrong. But they're not real, and God wants real, even if it means messy. God wants relationships. That's why He created us. He created us for relationship, for love. All of creation is firmly established in God who loves. And the minute you start talking about love, you start talking about messiness. Because love's never perfect. In fact, one of the definitions of love is knowing all of the real stuff about someone and still caring for them and being engaged with them anyway. Sometimes love is awesome. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes love brings us great joy. Sometimes it causes us great pain. The one common denominator of love is risk. In fact, I'm convinced if we don't have risk, we don't really have love. Because love is always risking, always taking a chance. Always taking a step beyond what is comfortable and easy. That's what love is. And we see that nowhere more than in God. Who creates in love despite the risk of rejection of the people he created. 
And he sends Christ in love despite how people may reject him. Because God wants relationship with real people. And the point of Christ's coming is not to seek out people whose lives are perfect, but to seek out people who are real. And to come into lives of people who, who live real lives in real places and probably creating a lot of real messes. People who are fallible and sinful and needy and lost. That's why he comes. C.S. Lewis says that somehow we have this confused idea that God comes for people who are redeemable. For comes for people who are worthy. He comes for people who've got it all together. But the reality is he comes for people who are unworthy. People who are, who are good don't need to be redeemed. And the whole point of his coming is that we need it. That's why he's here in the first place. When you read Matthew's story after the genealogy, he just gives a really brief description of the birth of Jesus. It's about Joseph and the angel and Jesus and the birth of Christ. And he only he mentions two names for this child. Emmanuel and Jesus. And Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus means God saves. And that's it. God comes among us to save us. And you can't separate those two ideas. They are infinitely woven together. God comes to save us. God saves us by coming among us. That's who Jesus is. That's what Jesus is about. And the reason he comes to save us is because we need saving. Because we are imperfect, fallible, sinful, lost people, real people. And our lives are messy. We might sometimes compare ourselves to other people and our lives don't look quite as messy as some people. And sometimes that makes us feel probably better about ourselves than we should be. But the reality is we all need Jesus. This whole celebration of Christmas is about Christ coming to us because we need him. And for some of us, we've never opened our hearts to Jesus. We've never been able to say, I need him. But he's looking for us to do just that. And for many of us, it's not a matter of, I've never opened my my heart to Christ, but it's, I've sort of gotten to the place where I feel like I can kind of do this on my own. I'm good enough. I have, I've gained enough. I've gotten further, far enough along that I, I'm, I'm good. It's at that very moment that we need Jesus that much more. Because we never reach the place where we're good enough. We need Jesus every moment, all the time. And the coming of Christ is not about people who are perfect and we figured it out. It's about the grace of God in every 
one of our lives every single day, every moment, all the time. You know, I have a lot of friends who who have told me throughout the years that they have chosen a life verse that they they connect with. A verse of the scriptures that that they keep in front of them. It just seems to describe their experience with God and what God means to them. And they, they've memorized it and they write it out and they look at it all the time. And they think about it. And they, and they talk about how they have this life verse. I've had very few people tell me that their life verse comes from the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel. Okay, I'll be honest with you. I have no one tell me that their life verse comes from the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel. But you know, maybe we should. Maybe, just maybe. This genealogy is one of the most profound ways in which God communicates his grace to us. That he comes for the good and the bad and the ugly, all of us. Those of us who think our lives are pretty decent and we're doing okay, we need the grace of God. And those of us who worry every day that we are not measuring up, that we're failing, that we're struggling, that we're not what we should be, the grace of God is for us too. And that's why we come to this table today. This table is the ultimate vision of God's grace for us, the ultimate experience here physically of God's grace for us. That God in Christ has offered us grace. And all of us, every single one of us, needs his grace. This table is not about trying to figure out who's in and who's out. This table is about hearing God's call of grace, his offer of grace, and opening our hearts to receive it. For the first time, for the hundredth time, the thousandth time. The church is not about people who are good. The church is about people who have heard God's offer of grace. We've opened our hearts and have been changed by the love and the mercy of Jesus. So as we come to this table this morning, Hear God's invitation of grace and come, receive it, and let God do something new in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit. Through Jesus, who is born to save us. Please pray with me.
Father, in this season when we celebrate the coming of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks and praise. You created all things and you called them good. You made us in your own image. And even though we rebelled against your love, you didn't desert us. You delivered us from captivity. You made covenant to be our God. You spoke through the prophets who looked for that day when justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And with the prophets... And all who have looked for a better age to come, with your people through all the ages, we gather today to give you thanks and to worship you. Father, you are holy. And we thank you for sending your Son in the fullness of time to be the light of the nations. We thank you that in him you scattered the proud and the imagination of their hearts and you have mercy on those who fear you from generation to generation. You fill the hungry with good things and you come in your grace. Father, we thank you for all of your mighty works in Jesus Christ. We pray that you will accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us. We pray that you will send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts, that in the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup, we may know the presence of the living Christ, that we may be one body in him, cleansed by his blood, that we may faithfully serve him in the world and look forward to that day foretold by prophets and apostles and the one who came in humility and who comes today in word and spirit shall come in final victory. Through him, with him, In him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, almighty God, now and forevermore. Amen.